Great to see more of you actual faces out there this morning. We still have a number of uh, people still recovering from COVID. Some have come down with COVID this past week, and uh, some are still watching online. I just want to say, uh, Richard Wilson, greetings to you this morning watching online. We are praying for you for a full recovery. Uh, Dylan, it's going to be your responsibility this morning. I need to stop by 1130 so we can enter, begin transition to the Lord's table. So if Dylan forgets, somebody just start, all of you start waving at me. Go, hey, it's 1130. You said you were going to stop. I'd, I'll probably need a big hint. We'll get as far as we can in uh, an overview of the gospel of Matthew this morning. In Matthew 8, 19, a certain scribe, remember what, what a scribe was in the New Testament period, he, it was one of the Jewish legal experts in the law, and he probably was impressed by the miracles of Jesus, and he came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go, and many of us would go, wow, a Jewish expert in the law is going to follow me? This, this, this is great. Come on in. But instead, Jesus uh, says to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Um, in his itinerant form of ministry, he often did not have so much as a place to sleep. It doesn't mean he didn't have a home back in Capernaum. Well, apparently the legal experts, the scribes' enthusiasm was superficial, and he hasn't caught, counted the cost of discipleship, and his promise is hasty and reliable, and Jesus gave him the terms of true discipleship. But then Jesus calls one who does not have the approval of the people, but has a despised profession a hated tax collector who's doing the work for Rome and making himself wealthy at his own, at the expense of his people. Matthew 9, Jesus passed on. He saw a man, Matthew, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. And it should remind us of the need for humility and not superficial enthusiasm. Paul writes this, Consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. There's some. God calls us from all different social standings and professions and, and ways of life, but he emphasized, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are not. I think about that when I read when I read Matthew, a despised tax collector, and God called him to follow him, and he left all and followed after him. Jeremiah 9.23 says it this way, Don't let a wise man go up 
wealthy in his wisdom. Don't let a rich man or mighty man boast of his strength, and don't let a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, that word boast there is not is not sinful boasting. It means to glory. This is what is considered important to you. Let him glory in, in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in I delight in these things, Lord. Lord, we look to you this morning. You have called us from different walks of life, from different social standings. We confess to you we were all dead in trespasses and our sins. And some, like Matthew the tax collector, some like Rahab the harlot, some like the moral Lydia at Philippi, you opened her heart. Some like Mary, the mother of Jesus who also said, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. We thank you that you have called us to yourself. Thank you for canceling the debt of our sin. Thank you for breaking the power of sin over us, that we are not slaves to sin. And so as we open the book this morning, we pray for strengthening grace to cause us to grow. Help us to understand the big picture of Matthew, that we'll see the forest. So as we go through and we look at particular passages, the trees, we won't be lost in terms of going from Jesus who saves his people from their sin to Jesus who has all authority in heaven and on earth. So uh, give us a humble, teachable attitude. For someone here this morning who may be a superficial follower or someone who knows they're not a follower, strike the heart. Be merciful and gracious, convict them of their sin, and draw sinners to yourself. And at the same time, strengthen your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are four Gospels. They are complementary accounts. They complete one another. The Gospels are written historical, selective accounts, but they also give us the theological significance of those accounts. When studying the Gospels, we want to make sure we read all four. They're complementary. They're real historical accounts, including the three-year ministry of Christ, and then the death, the burial, the resurrection. We go to Acts, his ascension, and he's coming again. But the Gospels are not merely history. Their theology is what they're teaching us, the importance of that. One has written, the Gospels are passion narratives with extended with an extended introduction. Now, that's, that's a bit of an overstatement. Um, it's not merely an introduction coming up to the Passion Week, the final week of our Lord. But that statement does note the importance of the final week of our Lord leading up to his voluntary sacrifice. And each gospel writer 
brings a unique perspective to the life and ministry of our Lord. Some of what they has to say certainly will overlap, but some of what they will say will be from a unique theme and perspective. Now, when I think about the Gospels, some of you may not be familiar with this. Some of you may have heard it as the synoptic problem. It's only a problem for, for contemporary readers who read the Bible. Maybe better to call the synoptic questions. And there's been a, lar a big debate for the last 200 years um, about who wrote first. Um, most today would, would hold that Mark uh, was the first, and then Matthew, fully aware of uh, Mark, he expanded Mark, and then Luke, and of course, all would hold that John wrote uh, later. Um, but that's not a unanimous consensus. There's a minority opinion, of which I happen to be in the minority on this one, and uh, hold to Matthean uh, uh, that Matthew wrote first. Uh, David Allen Black at Southeastern Seminary in North Carolina has a, has a helpful challenge when he wrote Why Four Gospels, and I have found that very helpful to my uh, thinking. Some even consider that this problem is, is insoluble. So it, it may be of some interest to look at the Gospels, and you will see what's called the triple tradition, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there are some agreements in there that are word for word in Greek, right down to the very article. And it's possible that God so inspired them to write that, but it's also probable from my perspective and many others, that there was that they had something in common. You say, well, why do you mention that? Why I mention that is this is for this reason. Some who hold that Mark wrote first, they'll take Mark's outline and they'll superimpose it upon the Gospel of Matthew. And I think I think that's an artificial imposition. Even if you believe Mark wrote first, we ought to let Matthew stand and get the theme from Matthew, not from Mark. So, when I think about the theme of Matthew, we looked at it last week. It's technically an inclusio. There are bookends around the entire Gospel of Matthew. It starts out in... Uh, the genealogy in verse 1, the book of the lineage of Jesus Christ. And for us as readers, we usually need to remind ourselves that when we're reading Christ in the Gospels, we're reading Messiah. Christ is simply the Greek translation of Messiah, of Messiah. It's only stated that in John chapter 1. Peter, Andrew, come here. I, I want to show you. We found the Messiah that the Christ, that is, the Messiah. So he is the Messiah. This is, links us back to the Old Testament. It's going to say, hey, the person that has been promised, he's here. Here's his lineage. Here's how, why Matthew quotes the Old Testament so often. And it's not always a direct 
Um, those are in, in actually in the minor or minority in terms of a direct uh, fulfillment, but we'll look at patterns of fulfillment. And secondly, you shall call his name Jesus. And it tells us why he'll save his people from their sins. The virgin shall conceive, bear a son. You shall call his name, in Hebrew, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, that means God with us. So when we come to the end, and we have these bookends around Matthew, and Jesus comes to the end, it says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You're to go and you make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always. There is a manual. So we have Jesus at the beginning, Jesus at the end, the one who saves his people from their sins. We have Emmanuel, God with us. So how do we go from the very beginning of that lineage to the end where Jesus says, now all authority has been given to me? So the theme is really, behold the promised Messiah, Jesus, the one who saves his people from their sins, Emmanuel, who now has all authority in heaven and on earth, and the one who is with us always. So let, me, let, me, let me state this to parents that have small children. When you go home, do this. You, you can help them learn the gospel of Matthew. Just ask them, what's Jesus mean? And they go, what? Go, were you sleeping during Pastor Klein speaking? Say, Jesus means the one who saves his people from their sins. Then ask them, what's Emmanuel mean? Emmanuel means God with us. So how do you go from the beginning to the end? How does Jesus save his people from their sins? That's the gospel of Matthew. And you will have given your children a great start on understanding this, this gospel. Now, so not superimposing Mark upon Matthew, but going to Matthew, is there a way which we can understand how to put together the, the, the gospel, a major outline that will help us understand this? Some have despaired and say, no, it, it's just one episode after another one. I say, no, that, that there is uh, a way. If if you go to any introduction, some of you may be using a Geneva Study Bible, some of you use the MacArthur Study Bible. If you go walk through uh, the Bible, Paul did walk through the Old Testament. If you look at their walk through the New Testament material, now it's alliterated, so, but if you read that material, all recognize that there are five major discourses in the Gospel of Matthew, you say, well, what's a discourse? A discourse is, is either an extended oral and written communication that, that's one unit. So initially, it was given by Jesus, and Matthew recorded that and wrote them down. So we, we might call them sermons, but they're more than, than sermons. They're communications that God gave and there are five of them in Matthew. Now, why this is so striking is because each one of these discourses has a particular setting 
that introduces it, and when you're done with the narrative, there'll be a transition, and they all, all five of these discourses will have the same thing at the end. And it'll say, and when Jesus had finished saying these things, and then it'll trans, trans, uh, trans, can you speak this morning, Dr. Klein, or are you tongue-tied? Transition back to narrative. So now some will outline and say, a discourse narrative, discourse narrative five times. So you put a discourse narrative together five times. I think you start with narrative discourse, but the same thing is you're going to end up at, at the same at the end uh, with uh, the passion uh, narrative. So if I were to ask you this morning, what are the five discourses or blocks of teaching in Matthew? Now, since we spent several months doing the first one, if you can't answer this one, I'm going to go, boy, did you really create that big of a fog out there? So we studied through the first discourse. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And what is the Sermon? And so the Sermon on the Mount is the longest one. It's chapters 5 through 7. And again, it's going to be introduced with a particular setting. And guess what one of the key themes is in the Sermon on the Mount? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus, John the Baptist said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus comes along and says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we have the Sermon on the Mount, which should clarify who's in the kingdom. It begins this way. First ones are called the Beatitudes, the blessings. There are bookends around those first eight Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That word poor there in Greek means you're bankrupt in your, in your spirit, in your own attitude before God. You have to look to him because theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. And then you come down to the end of the Beatitudes and you have the same thing. Blessed are you when you are persecuted, etc., for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it, that phrase is going to occur throughout the Sermon on the Mount at crucial points. And then you're going to come down to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And what does Jesus have to say? Look, some are going to say on the, to me on that day, they're going to call me Lord, Lord. And I'm going to say to them, I, I have never known you. Why? Because they didn't depart from sin. And so you either... Build on the rock Christ Jesus, you hear his words, and you do them. And when he was done, what did all the crowds do? It said they were amazed because he taught them, not like the legal experts, the scribes, he was one who taught them with authority. So right up at the, at the very front, at the first discourse, the first Sermon on the Mount, the very first one, the longest one, we're having this this section that is set out by Matthew, and it when you look at all those, none of the other Gospels do this by having an extended block or section of teaching with a certain introduction and this transitional statement back to narrative. That seems to be a key in terms of the way Matthew has put his Gospel 
together. We come to the second one, chapter 10. We're going to have narrative running down. Now it's building up. We're going through Matthew. Uh, Jesus is teaching, and guess what? Some don't like his teaching. And we see opposition begin to rise. And then when we come down to uh, chapter 10, the, in, the instruction for the 12, now there will be some things that are unique in chapter uh, 10, but there will also be a number of things that go beyond his original uh, disciples. That's good. I got through a number of pages before Dylan waves at me. Um, so the mission discourse in Matthew 10 describes not only the original mission of the 12, but there are also teachings in, in there that anticipate the later mission of the post-resurrection uh, church. But in particularly, related back to the kingdom of heaven, here's what they're supposed to do. Proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Only Matthew uses that phrase. Now, he will use kingdom of God five times. I think probably the best answer is why he uses kingdom of heaven is probably because he's sensitive to uh, he's writing uh, to Jews who would not use the name uh, uh, of God. Um, they, what is written, they, Kathiv Kare, I'm getting off. Get back, George. You only have 14 minutes left. Um, so that's what they're to do is proclaim uh, uh, the kingdom of heaven. Then we come down to chapter 13. And so there's transition there um, out of chapter 10, back to narrative again. It's going to do the same thing, and then we're going to follow. Uh-oh, opposition is increasing. Things are getting worse. More opposition to Jesus. And then we come down to chapter 13, and what are the parables about? Well, the first one is what some call the parable of the sower, I think it's better to call it the parable of the soils. It's really about the condition of the heart. And even the disciples didn't understand it at first. Jesus had to explain it for them. Namely, if you are in the kingdom, just like in Matthew chapter 5, then you will bear some good fruit in your life. We may not all bear fruit to the same extent, but every true disciple of Christ will bear some good fruit. And there are eight of them. The first four are addressed to the crowds, and in the middle of chapter 13, Jesus goes back into the house. I take it a house there in Capernaum, and he gives four more to his disciples. And what are they about? The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. Then, so... First discourse, 5 through 7. Second, 10. Third, 13. And then we come down to chapter 18, which is the fourth discourse, and it starts out this way. He's been teaching his disciples. They're walking around with them, and they want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, if you've never had that thought in your mind, how blessed are you? Most preachers think of ourselves more highly than we ought, and the Lord has to take out a two-by-four and whack some sense back into us. Um, True greatness in the kingdom is being a servant, a slave of all. And so what Jesus does in chapter 18, he talks about values and relationships in the kingdom. It'll have a setting at the end of that that discourse, that block of teaching, it'll have another statement when Jesus had finished all these things, and so you go right back to discourse. Again, these sections seem intentional by Matthew. And guess what? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What are values like that? And what also do we have in chapter 18? Forgiveness. Do you ever have a hard time forgiving somebody that's offended you? If you never have a hard time forgiving someone who has offended you, you probably haven't been offended very much. And so Jesus teaches on that as well. Those are values, relationships. So again, we're seeing four sermons thus far, four blocks of teaching tied into the kingdom of heaven. And then we come down to chapter 24 and 25. There's a future aspect to the kingdom, the Olivet Discourse, because it's given on the Mount of olives, but it talks about judgment on Jerusalem. And that's why some say uh, Matthew had to be written post-A.D. 70, because Matthew could never have known about uh, um, what was coming, so he must have taken the events afterward and wrote about it. Well, that's just because they don't believe in supernatural prophecy. But He not only talks about judgment on Jerusalem, but he also talks about his second coming. And guess what is in there? This gospel of the kingdom has to be preached before the Lord returns. We have kingdom of heaven in 25.1 and 14. So in the coming weeks, I want you to keep in mind, I'll remind myself as I remind you, where are we at in the trees as we're walking through the individual sections will back up and say what's the forest the forest it'll help it helps me it should help you to remember how many major blocks of teaching five and how many sections of narrative does it transition into five so there you go if you put those two together, you're going to have five major sections that's going to help you think through the Gospel of Matthew, where we're at, how does, how does Matthew go from Jesus, Emmanuel, to Jesus telling his disciples, all authority has been given to me, and lo, I am with you always. There's the link. So that's what we're going to walk through in terms of the Gospel of Matthew. So I just... I think it's helpful when we note those transitions. That's what stands out. You notice each one of these discourses will end with a similar saying by Matthew. When Jesus had finished these sayings, commanded his disciples, etc., and we're going back to narrative. So I put it together like this. It's not original with me, but I think this has been the most helpful way for me to put the Gospel of Matthew together, as probably Matthew apparently intended. So we're going to have start with his public ministry in chapters 3 and 4. That's going to go right into the first discourse. Then you're going to have narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, etc. And what the narratives are doing 
They're telling the storyline. How are we going to get from this opening to the conclusion? Why is there all this opposition? And what are true disciples like? And then it will end in the uh, Passion Week and uh, the final death, burial, resurrection of our great God and Savior. So when I put all that together, I would say it looks something like this. So I'm putting a label over each one of these five sections to help me remember it. In, in 3.1, all the way through putting the, the narrative and the discourse together, we might call this the early days of the kingdom of heaven. Then, after Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, and we have that transitional statement, what's he immediately do? He goes out there and starts healing. So not only are the people amazed, what kind of man is this that teaches with this kind of authority? Now, we're also asking this question, what kind of a man is this? That a man blind from birth, a man crippled from birth, he can heal them. So it's asking the question over and over in Matthew, saying, who do you think this man is? Why does he have such authority? Um, and why, why are people opposed to him? Matthew's going to answer that question. Um, and the opposition to the kingdom is going to increase in 11, and then Jesus is going to explain parables of the kingdom of heaven. You know how, be, how important to be in the kingdom of heaven it is? It's like a man that went out and sold everything he had to buy a pearl, a great price. Look, there's nothing as important in your life and in my life to be a part of God's children in his kingdom. So we could say like Paul in Colossians, he's transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his own dear son. How do you get into the kingdom of his own dear son? You don't get there in your own merits. You get there through Jesus who will save his people from their sins. And how do you get in there? Matthew chapter 18. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Come here. Give me a little child. Put it on my lap. Unless you have faith like one of these little children, humble yourself. You'll never be in the kingdom. We come down to uh, opposition to the kingdom continues, um, 13, and then we're going to come down to, to 18. Again, a transitional statement out. The opposition is going to peak in Judea. Actually, we're, it's not like, uh, again, the Gospels are complements to one another. They complete one another. Matthew does not have all the geographical travels that John will have. So we're going to go from up here in Galilee, and as he comes down into Perea and then Jerusalem, and he tells his, his disciples over and over again in those passion predictions, I'm going down to Jerusalem. The chief priests and the scribes are going to kill me. And on the third day, I'm going to be raised from the dead. After that great profession of Peter up in Caesarea Philippi, uh, others say this, whom do you say that I am, Peter? And it's actually to you all, and Peter pipes up. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, 
the Son of the living God. And then Jesus gives a passion prediction. Here's what's going to happen when I go down there. And Peter goes, no, 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 come here. Come here, Lord. Come here. That is not going to happen to you. you got Peter here. And uh, Peter, God has to rebuke Peter. Their understanding is slowly increasing until you get to that one passion prediction close to in, in 26, and it says finally it's starting to sink in. And it says they were extremely sorrowful. All right, three minutes before Dylan waves at me. Um, wow, I actually got through that three minutes, three minutes early. So that's kind of the big picture that we want to keep in mind as we begin next week and take one section at a time. Next week we'll, we'll look at uh, uh, the genealogy and why that is so important. And uh, how, how could you have a prostitute included in there, Rahab the harlot? It, it ought to be speaking grace, grace, whether you're David, whoever you are, all the way down to uh, the Babylonian captivity. It's grace. It's grace. This is the connection back to the old, Older Testament, the Jewish scriptures. This is the person. If you have missed him or you miss him, you missed it all. You missed it all. That's why, oh, young men, thank you for studying the scriptures. They're, they're studying the epistle to the Hebrews, correct? Yes. So when you get down to chapter 6 or 5, 11 through 6, 4, you want to get that one right. Anyway, it says this, you can't go back. You can't go back to the shadows. You can't go back to Judaism. You can't go back. No, if you abandon Christ, you've left it all. That's Matthew. So I'm going to fast forward and then um, for the Lord's table this morning, if you will turn with me in Matthew chapter 26.